The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. I'd like to welcome you all to the BSV. It's a long time since I've been here. I think at least a year. And of course, for many of you, it's also been a very long year. So we are now just entering into what is the, um, the year of the ox, the metal ox in the Chinese New Year, just in the last couple of weeks, we have uh, embarked on this big year. And so I thought it would be good for us to um, talk about a, a teaching that I, I gave many years ago here, which is on, uh, it's called the Ox Herding Sutras. And the Ox Herding Sutra is, uh, is a classic in the Zen tradition and in Chinese tradition. And it is also, I've discovered, um, in the traditional Buddhist tradition in a form. The Buddha did give a teaching about, for an ox herder, on how to take care of his ox. And many of the analogies are quite similar in this teaching. And there is also the teaching of the, the monkey and the um, sitting on the back of uh, an elephant. And there's a lot of similar parallels in that teaching that came out of India. So I will share some of the traditional aspect. Just to, I will run through the first four stages in particular today and just touch very briefly on the others. I might give another talk on those at another time. But these first four stages are very important. Uh, and are very relevant for us today. So I've got a little button. Now, as you see, here's a little figure sitting at... looks a little bit like Adrian, actually. <laughs> Standing on this rock, looking out into the abyss. And uh, the wonderful thing about these these pictures, as you see a lot in them, you know, many of us would have felt like that coming towards the end of last year, you know. <laughs> what is the future holding for us? We're looking out there with our hands up and wondering, you know, what has happened to the world. So here we have a, a very classical, perhaps the most famous series in the top picture, painted by Tensho Shubun, in the 15th century. And also in the 15th century, there was another great um, teacher and, uh, and Chinese philosopher who did the first series, or the first known series of poems. They suspect there were early ones. The paintings were also known to have been around since the 8th, 9th century but they haven't, the, the poetry hasn't lasted. So the poems that I'm using in this series are by Koon, and he was from the, um, the 11th century. The other three little pictures you see it below are just other forms. Um, the one on your left is by one of my uncle monks, who was a very famous temple painter, and he was also a great Zen artist. So this simplistic, um, humorous, cartoonish style of Zen art has uh, been very popular, and it's very direct. It is simple. You can see what, what's in the images. The middle one is a temple painting, a classical temple painting. This one's from my home temple in Songkwangsa. Again, the temple paintings are in pretty well all the, the major temples throughout Korea. You will see this series of ox herding pictures. Um, ten pictures that go from this, this stage of the search right through the stage where the ox herder, the boy, has become a great sage and returns to teach in the village. And the little one on the right, again, the bewildering and um, 
He looks a little bit scared <laughs> in that image. Bodhidharma, who was the founder of Zen in China in about the um, 5th century, he says, I better put my glasses on again. When I have them on, I can't see you. <laughs> when I don't have them on, I can't see what's in front of my nose. So when the mind appears, reality disappears. When mind disappears, a reality appears. And this is very much what all of this is about. Because the ox... Oh, I'll take you back to the picture, and we'll just go through that a little bit. The ox is a depiction of the mind, or, or consciousness, or... However, you would see um, the, this state of unknowing, this state of vast um, connect, connection that we have with the world through our senses and which is interpreted through our intellect, our thoughts, is what we call mind. In its very deluded or illusory states where we're confused, where we're lost, where we're... Um, and when I say lost, that means consumed in our materialistic lives, is seen as the big dark ox. But still it has power. It's still part of us. And the series is about the purification of this. It is about coming to understand the mind and in a sense purifying it is more about in, enlightening the mind or developing the wisdom. And so we will use some words like pure mind or um, even Buddha mind. Buddha mind just means the wisdom of the Buddha. It's, it's not saying it is the Tathagata. It is just referring to aspects of the mind as it develops and we come to understand it. Of course ourselves and, and that nature, that uh, pure, enlightened Buddha capacity is not something that's separate. But as we go along through our practice, through our um, discovery of self, then this mind starts to, this enlightened mind starts to become something that's very present in all our actions and in all our senses through our senses. If you look here, he's, he's on a path, he's lost something in this case. He doesn't even know what he's lost, but of course, being the ox herder, it is the ox. He doesn't know where it is. They say the rivers grow wi wide and the distant mountains get high and the thickets, the um, the grasses and the thickets become very dense. And so in all the pictures, he's generally bewildered and lost. And so we can ask, you know, I've put these few little references here, you know, what is the search or why are we searching? If this potential to be a Buddha is within us, it's never lost. In the beginning, it is always there. It, even after enlightenment, it doesn't go anywhere. What is it that the herdsman is looking for? And in reality, it is just that we have turned away from ourselves. We've turned away from truth. We've turned away from Dhamma. And we've turned away from a path that is really quite meaningful and is leading us somewhere. And so here he's moved into what's called dusty regions, a confusion. So I'll go through some of the analogies as we go along. But a dusty region is a confusion. It is where we're feeling inadequate, where we're feeling separate. We've separated ourselves somehow to what it is we feel comfortable with. And we are lost in the views of profit and gain and the views of what's right and wrong, or the, the distinctions of um, any duality, we might say. They call it the eight worldly winds in the Chinese Buddhism. And they all are about self and other. And it says here, it is like all the oppositions 
are like spears attacking in a battlefield. In the old days, when they had a fight, spears would go from one end of the field and hit at the other end and, and again in opposition. So our thoughts can play out like this, where we're always trying to find the better way of, or, or judging or um, having various expectations of what it is we want and we want, what it is we want of others. So in this little poem, the first poem by Cohen, he says, In an endless wilderness, the lonely herdsman strides through the thickets of weeds searching for his ox. Wild flows the river, far rises the mountains, and ever deep into entanglement runs the path. Utterly exhausted and in despair, even so searching, the herdsman finds no guiding directions. In the evening twilight, he only hears, sorry, that should be hears, the song of the cicadas in the trees. points to when what you're all doing here today for many of you you've been coming for many years and I'll talk about that in the next one but for some of you you're very new it's what is bringing you to want to investigate who you are something you deeply feel something you deeply know is there is present right in the the core of who you are and at some point, when we turn away from what it is we think we know, we have, we believe in, because it's no longer serving us, then we step onto this path. And this is what is the beginning of this search. This is what this boy is doing. He begins as a boy because that's the, the childish nature of us, that's the the insecurities, the unknown. He's an ox herder because there is still these, uh, these bullish, you might say, or these um, tendencies of, of having to learn to train ourselves and train the mind. And I put here a couple of references by the Buddha, which I think are applicable in this case. Rather than to trying to control the thoughts it's better to understand the mind more generally, the mind as a whole. No other things do I know, O monks, that bring so much benefit as a mind that is tamed, is guarded, protected and controlled. Such a mind truly brings great benefits. So this is basically where he's going, where he's leading. This O monks is the original illuminous mind. But if it has become defiled or advantageous defilements, uninstructed worldlings do not understand this as it really is. Therefore, for him, there is no mental development. Usually in these series, there's a little set of poems. I just have to bring something up here. Late, and this was written by a haiku poet um, who died very young. Um, and this was his last poem. He, died, he wrote this on his deathbed shortly before he passed away. A late summer cicada at the top of his voice is chirping and chirping. So the late summer cicada means that uh, there's not many other cicadas around <laughs> to mate with, so he's giving his all. And in a way, this is what this young Oxherder has discovered when he finally rests, it's dark, it's late, and he's giving his all, he's let go of everything, he's relaxed, his senses are wide open, and there comes the sound. 
And sound in particular in the next one is very, very important. Um, another th few little things, the sweet mel melon grass or the, the wild grasses are often the states of samadhi, but here they're being trampled, the states of calm, the states of meditation, but not knowing how to walk or talk or how to meditate or how to use the body. These wild, lush grasses are being trampled and the desires of the, which are analogy of the river, grow wide and the strong self-will you know, can you imagine trying to find something, this strong self-will? Also, these are the distant mountains that grow very high. So all the analogies in this, uh, this series are, um, are something that Zen monks and nuns um, work by. We, we tend to work by poetry, by analogies, by very direct Pointers, you know, you say that the fingers pointing to the moon. These are very direct pointers. In the second uh, stage, he's finding the tracks. Now, the tracks, I'll have to keep time. <laughs> the tracks are, uh, in this series, are related to the teachings. At some point, as I mentioned, we find ourselves hearing some Dhamma, hearing some truth, reading a book, meeting somebody. There is something that turns us in a different direction and has us inquiring and inspired and interested. Suddenly, life becomes... has a different meaning, a different... depth to it. When I first started in my first retreat, I remember hearing the teachings, the Dhamma. It was particularly, along with the meditation, but particularly the Dhamma. Everything I heard sounded true. This is particularly talking to the Buddhist teachings in this, uh, this second one. Everything I heard was was meaningful and truthful. It was as if I had just had a, a, a glass of very, very pure water that was very refreshing. And here a, a, a famous Zen poet, Ikkyu, he says, the ox, although is unyet seen, he fills the sky and he's fills the earth. This means that the ox is everywhere. It's in everything we see and everything we taste and touch and do. And that is the reality. You think you're seeing something out there, but no, you're seeing what you're interpreting of me in this moment. You're seeing the world as you're interpreting in the moment. But it, once you start to understand it like that, it doesn't always make sense because it's no longer confined by just our views, our preferences. It starts to unfold where we start to really look. We start to really listen. And this one is about the capacity to really listen. It says, reading the sutras and hearing the teachings have enabled the herdsman to grasp something of the meaning of truth if only intellectually. Often in the beginning it's just an intellectual pursuit and we have to be careful that we don't start to um, just learn the rhetoric of the Dhamma, just learn the, the words of the Dhamma. We have to start to see where that's pointing. Still, he has found the traces. These footprints are the traces of truth. And he's starting to understand things that are all of the same metal, the same gold. I'll illuminate that in a moment. However differently they may be formed. Two, the nature of each thing is not different from his own Buddha nature. 
again one of those words developed in Mahayana. But the Buddhist truth here, or the Buddhist innate wisdom. Nevertheless, he still cannot distinguish between what is genuine and what is not, not to mention between what is true or false. He cannot even, he cannot as yet pass through the gate, and the gate is what we call the gateless gate in Zen. The gateless gate is the gate of emptiness. It is therefore provincially said that he has only found the traces. In the poem, the traces of the ox are clustered here and there, under the trees and by the sides of the water. Has the herdsman found a way among the thick, sweet-scented grasses? Has he found a way to meditate? Has he found the bliss? Has he found the deep stillness, the deep wakefulness? However far the ox may run, even deeper into the mountains, deeper into the, the search, his nose reaches to the sky so he can no longer be concealed. The ox's nose. In this is, is talking about there is a development through the, the understanding of the Dharma or the hearing of the Dharma that things are starting to connect. And they use this connection in the words of the metal. It came from, um, the analogy came from where you have all these pots in a kitchen. The pots are different shape, different sizes, have different purpose and function, but they are all made of the one metal. But the sutras have many words, but they're all pointing to the one mind. And this one mind is gold in this case. This is the the purest form of metal is gold. There's a wonderful analogy of a, a, a golden lion that a great king, um, uh, sorry, a great master delivered to a princess in China. And he's, he's saying, well, what's the difference between the gold of the lion and the shape of the lion? The gold, is the gold the line? Or is the iron, the, the, the shape, the, 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 the line? It's a very interesting analogy. And it was through this that that famous queen became uh, enlightened. He delivered it, it's in the Avatamsaka Sutta. He delivered this very, very clear analogy, how to decipher what is pure and beyond shape and the purpose of shape. So what is the form and what is the function? The function is the lion. The form has a purpose. Once we see form, we know its shape and color and what it does. But what is the gold? The gold is the essence. It is the Buddha mind. It is the enlightened mind. It is the pure mind. It's what's carried in every being, including sentient, other sentient beings. Just that humans have a little more capacity to awaken to it. Although I have heard stories of awakened animals, even birds, one great master said there was a, a pheasant, a very a rooster who was very naughty and always picked on his hens. But then every time he asked the rooster to come and listen to the Dharma talks, the rooster came. And when he died, the rooster went up to the front of the room, turned three times one way, three times the other way, dropped back on its back dead. <laughs> So even, he said, if even this rooster can understand the Dhamma, <laughs> what about the rest of us? So this is where the teachings can have a very profound 
impact. They can lead us very directly to where it is we need to go, but they are not in themselves, of themselves, the essence. As yet, you know, the ox and the herd's boy are two. They have not yet connected. But in the next one, the connection deepens. Here's a little poem. Determination, deep. In the mountains, your efforts bear fruit. Tracks. How gratifying to see a sign. There is always a sign, always something that inspires us to another stage of our practice. But it's usually, even though words, even though my words, you'll, you'll hear them and some little phrase you'll take home for a while, it's quite quickly gone. Maybe you'll see an ox or you'll see a cow somewhere and you'll think, oh, <laughs> you'll have a second look, <laughs> a second thought. But it takes usually some repetition. That's why coming every week and hearing the Dharma over and over again. But you can get to know it very well and still not progress very deeply on the path, so it's not enough. And we still have to find a way home. The herdsman has only seen the marks. Let's see if there's anything here. There are teachers and there are teachings, but as yet we may not have the discriminatory capacity to know what is true. What will lead us inwards? Or what will just attract more atta uh, attachment? As we've seen with charismatic teachers, they just attract a lot of people who are very attached to them and their form and the way they teach. But it's not enough. And the tracks also, as I mentioned, just as in the teachings, are pointing just to the relative truth. They guide, they inform. They may even give us some momentary insights, as a Dharma talk may. But we're just getting a glimpse, and we can think in a glimpse of the truth. Was it a dream? Did I see something? Or is it just another illusion? A lama once said, if you understand the origin of your natural state of being, you understand there is a possibility to transcend our pain. That's very important. If we can go to this origin, to this depth of our being, we can, our pain are various. It's not just a sore knees or sore back. We have deep human Pain, not just for ourselves. The deeper you go in practice, the pain is no longer about this, me and mine. We're, we are feeling the human suffering at the moment with COVID. We can say, oh, we're all, you know, in Australia, we're doing really well. Wonderful, I can get on with my life. But we don't have to go very far to see what's still happening in the world of humanity. The suffering is a very deep river. So with more familiarity of the Dharma, the landscape opens up. And that's where the concept, the idea of things be of one metal, we start to see further and deeper. And then we come to stage three, seeing the ox. He's just seeing the tail, just the rump. But look at him. He's, suddenly his energy is, 
He's got life. He knows what it is. So it is like when you have a taste, a taste of the Dhamma. It deeply inspires and you want more. That truth flows deep in our core of our, our body and mind. This is seeing the rump. We also see, because the landscape's now getting wider and he's knowing the terrain, he's starting to understand how to practice a little more and he's starting to understand the behaviours, you know, how to walk and talk and how to, well, not in his case at the moment, but he certainly knows how to run. But he's, in the case of the analogy, coming back to ourselves, we're starting to see if we live a more moral life, if we're more caring and more careful. We start, truth is everywhere. It becomes very strong in our life. How we want to live becomes more determined to practice. And this is also um, about hearing. You know, it's, it's also about the sound. They say it's connected to the... Um, uh, there's, there's a great deity in, in Mahayana Buddhism who's uh, called a bodhisattva, one who's enlightened in, in some great capacity. And in this case, with Avakloshteshvara or Kuan Yin, she's enlightened by sound. She hears something. And that hearing, just like in the cicada, was different in the cicada. The cicada awakened him a little, but he didn't know what it was. It was just, even though he didn't understand, he just heard the cicada in, in the night, a dying cicada. But here, the hearing becomes something that opens the other senses. So we've gone from the last one, we're hearing Dharma, but that hearing is different to this. Because in this one, he is hearing the deep... I, I, I gave an analogy of it once in a talk, and some of you have heard it. If you hold a rose, you can smell it and see its beauty and touch it, and it's very soft and smooth. All the qualities of the rose are something where we, we deeply resonate and like. But if we take that rose and we put it to our ear, even though all the other senses have a, a clear connection to the rose, what is it we hear in it? And this is related to Avakaloshteshvara in the sense she can hear all the sufferings of the world, or she can recognize through sound the various forms of pain. And she has the tools, the instruments, the, the practices to alleviate that. And so this is about, we've seen the rump, we've seen something that is deeply profound, right in my face, and we're not going to let that disappear. He says here, he catches sight, the mo so at the moment, the herdsman hears the song of the oriole. Oriole is this very beautiful bird. I have a picture of it here. But in China, Korea, Japan, the oriole has a very sweet song that they say, and they're also the pair of orioles, the couple, communicate in a very beautiful way. We can learn a lesson as humans from the Orioles on how to communicate as a couple <laughs> or in a family because the sound of the Oriole is so captivating and so it, in hearing it, your mind is stilled. It catches sight of the tail of the ox. It's an interesting analogy between a bird and the, the tail of an ox. But anyway... The oriole, he catches, from the sound of the oriole, he sees something very deep. 
and all his straying senses are calmed and quiet and in harmony with the surrounds. This is a state of samadhi. This is a state of maybe entering even pre-entering into jhana. Suddenly, right there, we see the ox in his entirety. So if we can see the tail, we know what's in front. So we know just seeing one thing, we know if you look at my finger, you know it's part of a hand. If we see a, a rose petal, we know it's part of a rose. We see one part, we can see the whole thing. And of course, then the, the, the big horns raise up into the sky and he cannot miss it. Suddenly, right there, we see the ox in his entirety and he permeates each of the herdsman's actions. So suddenly the meditation, when we deeply into enter meditation, we start to become more gentle, more careful. How we walk, how we talk, how we eat, how we sleep is permeated by the depth of uh, meditation. He is present in an inherent manner. He's always present, always awake. Well, he's alert, you know, he's catching this thing. As salt is in seawater or as glue is in paint, you can't take salt out of seawater, you can't take glue out of paint. They are totally immersed, totally one binds the other. When the herdsman opens his eyes and takes a look, he sees nothing other than himself. Hard to see an analogy of the rump of an ox as myself, but... <laughs> Often, even our gross behaviors, our bullish behaviors, when we see them, we see something of ourselves. We see through those actions how they work, what they do, how they affect us, how they affect others. The story of Panchan. This is interesting. One day Master Panchan went to the town and by chance saw a man in a butcher's shop who wanted to buy some boar meat, pig meat. The customer said, A pound of good boar meat, please. Whereupon the butcher threw down his knife on the wooden board and crossed his arms and retorted, in my shop, there is only good meat, not a scrap of bad. At that moment, Master Panchan was awakened. What he is alluding to here is the non-dual, the non-differentiation, the non-separation. There is only one. And that again is what we're seeing with the ox. There is only the ox. I mean, he won't recognize that quite away. It takes the next, you know, after the next one, then he has to go through the process of training, which I won't talk about so much today, and you get a lot of that. In the third poem, the form and the voice of the ox were heard and seen. Thus, Taesung, that's the painter of all these main paintings, of these ox herding pictures, made wonderful art. Still, he cannot depict the real ox, as in the real nature of the beast. From head to tail, his picture is like the heart of the ox. But on closer examination, one becomes aware that it is still not complete. This is a little poem by my teacher, the Golden Oriole. 
Among the willow branches swaying in the spring breeze, the golden oriole is singing. How can a sparrow experience such joy when calling to his mate? Ah, this moonlight glimmers in the forest is my true home. The glimmer when something I have in my forest, I look out at a forest in the back. And every evening when there's a pleasant day, a warm day, the sun sets, comes through the forest, and it's just ribbons of light. You know, then you can ask, well, what is the sun? What are the ribbons? What is the light? And I know they're not the tree. They're just the luminous mind that perceives it at that moment. And we don't have to be very enlightened to see that. Snim said, uh, it should be, it has a beautiful song. How can a swallow know the love song of an oriole? And stage four. In stage four, catching the ox. You know, it's one thing seeing it. It's another thing knowing how to hold it, how to rein the mind in, how to rein the, 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 the likes, the, the desires and the passions and the very, very long-practiced habits we've cultivated through our family habits, our educational habits, our societal habits. The way we think is, is often not how we really think. And this is a very big mind of what it is we know and what it is we do. How do we rein that in? How we've caught it, we're catching it here, but how do we work with it? Today, for the first time, the herdsman meets the ox who has been hidden in the wilderness for a long time, hidden in our confusion, our thoughts. However, the world of the wild, however, this world of the wide, which he is accustomed to, still attracts him. So it's hard for him to be held or hard to hold him. He cannot detach himself from his desires of the sweet grass. Stubborn self-rage, st stubborn selfs will still rage in him and his wild nature rules. If the herdsman wants to gentle the ox, he must discipline him with a whip. Now this is, <clears throat> this is talking about, when we're talking about the sweet grasses, actually other states of samadhi, the states of meditation. And it says that he, he bolts up to the high plat plains, high plateaus, means we, we race off to do meditation retreat, and then we come back down into the valleys of cloud and mist. Then we come back into our everyday and our desires and passion. We do this for quite a long time until they start to come together. My teacher's teacher was a very famous Korean master by the name of Hyobong Snim. And um, just with the phrase above, how to grab and embrace this magnificent, unattainable pure mind. He sat in a, in a box. He was very old, quite old for um, a monk when he, he became a, a monk. He was a lawyer, and a judge actually, and he had to judge somebody, um, a Korean, during the Japanese occupation. He had to judge based on the Japanese law of it um, for a political situation that the Korean was involved in. And he was to be guilty, sentenced to death. And he was so perturbed by this, he left and he became a toffee seller. And then he went off to, he found a teacher, somebody a bit like Huen Eng, somebody was teaching Dharma. He heard it, thought that was deeply profound, went off to find a teacher. And he found his teacher 
and he just sat. His teacher used to say to him every day, how can this old bag of bones become enlightened? And the story is that his bottom was always wet because he had blisters on it. Floors in Korea are hot, but he didn't sit on a cushion. He just sat on the floor day and night, practiced very hard. And still he didn't fully reach where he wanted to go. So he went and sat in a little box, a little box, and they fed him one meal a day through the box. And uh, the attendant came one day offering food, and then he had called out, are you okay? Is there anything you need? And Hyobong's nim retorted, no one here but an ox without nostrils. Can you imagine an ox without nostrils? Everything's about the nose, you know. And it's talking about when he's catching the ox, their noses meet. When you go deeper into the text, there's many other commentaries to these. The noses meet means that we meet head on. Actually, there's a lovely picture of my teacher with a little calf and he's holding his fist out like this. I was with him that day and he was trying to teach me something. <laughs> I didn't get it. But the calf was butting against his fist and it, there's this little tuggle going on, you know. There's toing and froing between the, the calf and my teacher's hand, my teacher's power, so they were sort of having a go together. And he is talking about this, when you completely meet and the mind and the ox are no longer separate and the self is no longer there, then where is there a nostril? Where is there form? That too has gone. I mean, this wasn't his full awakening, but this was insight, deep insight. In this fourth poem, after great difficulties, uh, sorry, great efforts, and using his last ounce of strength, the ox herder finally catches the ox. Still obstinate and willful and strong, how to hold and rein him in? This is our mind, still willful and strong and got all sorts of things it's very, uh, very attached to. So it's not easy to rein it in. At times the ox breaks away and climbs to distant high plateaus, then down into the valley filled with fog and clouds where he hides. Much of Buddhist practitioners practice this way off they go, <laughs> got to have our yearly retreat or our monthly retreat. And then they come home and samsara is on top of them again. Life is overwhelming again. And so they last a few, few more months with the family and with all the issues and still seeing some separation. And off they go to have some sweet grass, some some nice peaceful meditation and stillness and then they come back. Yun Wu, who wrote the Blue Cliff Records, which is a very famous book of all the Japanese koans, he said, the essential thing is to make the roots deep and the stem strong. Here the roots mean to enter again and again the deep meditation so wisdom can grow and compassion can develop. And the stronger the stem, the easier to rain. The stem is a tool. It is the, uh, the working with our vows. It's all the tools, all the disciplines, all the practices we have. So we can in the worldly life. We can in the world be a gentler ox, be a gentler mind, be a more caring mind. The more we can restrain the wandering mind, the gentler 
our bullish behaviours become. And Moomin Roshi said, seeing the ox's horns rise in the open skies is like the reflection in a clear mirror of the rising sun that lights up the sky. The clear mirror here is what we call mirror mind. But even if you place a mirror, clean a mirror and put it outside so the sun reflects in it, what do you see? It's a good experiment. You see a pure reflection of luminous light. It's like the luminous mind. Self-inquiring, self-inquiry, knowledge and action must be in accord with one another so as to unveil this pure luminous mind. The mind of the Buddha's wisdom once said, when the ox looks you straight in the face, its pure heart mind shines forth from both the highest mountains and the deepest valleys. Then the mountains and valleys, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. It doesn't matter what you're doing in the world. These start to become where you are in that time and doing what you are doing in that time. Wanting things always to go our way won't work. We have to learn to work with the conditions as they're rising and with consistency. A master said, the further you go, the deeper it gets. And the more you realize, the harder you must strive. Hmm. So, I'll just show you. There are, as I say, I just point to where the ox has been caught and then he starts to train the ox. The training is actually as you would as a monk, but this is the training of the mind. He trains it, the ox becomes very, very... Uh, gentle and he rides him back home and when you see him back home there is no longer an ox there he enters after quite some time into the deep um, unity of all things into the oneness of all things with a mind there's no inside no outside no dualities of any form or shape and then seasons come and go I noticed in Korea, seasons are very important. And they're also very, uh, they define a lot of your life and a lot of your activities. You know what to do in summer and in autumn and in winter and spring. Each season has very, very distinct flavors, st distinct um, beauty distinct seasons. So it was quite easy to practice with all of that, I found, in, in my um, earlier years of practice. But in Australia, even though we do have seasons, they, they can merge and blend a little bit. We, we have learned to live in houses that have no cold, <laughs> no hot. <laughs> we, we get into a car that, you know, the temperature's always mid-twenties. We get into the office and it's mid-twenties. We, we don't, you know, our food, whether it's summer food or winter food, it's the same. Whether it's food from this part of the world or that part of the world, we, we consume it all. So there's a lot of things that don't necessarily help in one way to understand the, the great value of seasons. But in other ways, they do help us develop a lot of, what do we say, knowledge about, um, a broader knowledge about humanity. And then eventually the enlightened teacher comes back to teach. And he's always seen in this series as a bit like a, um, there's a 
a Japanese character who has a big bag of gifts, butti. And butti comes back and he's always giving gifts. What The gifts are what ev everyone needs to help awaken, to help alleviate their suffering. So he gives little things, little teachings, little um, inspirations to help others alleviate their pain. So this is, a, this is the, the general, just a very general talk, a very brief talk on what it is our practice is moving towards and what it is we're wanting. But there are many pitfalls and there are many places until, of course, we come to this state of, even in the state of emptiness, there are pitfalls. Originally, the, the ox herding pictures were either five or ten pictures that finished with the circle, with the emptiness. But uh, a couple of centuries ago, they added two more. Yeah. So anyway, is there any more, any questions you might have? But uh, something, I'm sure there's lots of things that are unclear. I had one student who came after four weeks, five weeks of teaching and said, I don't get Buddha nature. I don't get true mind or, you know, all these words. <laughs> I don't get it. And he was referencing to the very, the pictures, you know, well, what does the bull mean? So hopefully we've, we've clarified that one, <laughs> if nothing else. That is helpful. But if there is um, one or two questions, you're very welcome. Hello, Cora. Yes. Uh, the two extra are the one, the seasons, the, the seasons, so he, he, he's gone, the self has gone, the individual ego has, has completely dissolved, so he's, he's entered into what you'd call ni probably Nibbana, but this is where the cultivation is to enter into all existence. You know, the nature is about all things. So there's absolutely um, the, the purpose of this world has infinite functions and infinite uh, depth. So he has to enter into all of those functions and all of that depth. So he remains in the mountains to, you know, it's beyond the purifications, beyond the, the aspirations or developments of practice. It is complete assimilation. Of the, of the depth of teaching. And, you know, when you think of the Buddha, how many, how many eons of lives did the Buddha have before he became a Buddha? You know, we may not have had so many enlightened lives. I mean, we've all had um, great experiences and depth, otherwise we would not be sitting in this room. You know, you've all been studying Buddhism for, for, for a long time. <laughs> But we have to refine it again, you know. Again, the depth is not there that it's always bright and brilliant. It clouds over with the dust. The ox becomes, you know, more interested in the, in, in the, um, in the passions and the physical delights. Yes. Thanks, God. And take your mask off. <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you for the talk. Um, I just had a question about striving. <clears throat> so I wanted to understand maybe how striving works in the context of becoming enlightened, but how one should avoid um, becoming wanting in that striving. That's right. How to separate the two, I guess, the yeah. nuance of the striving that leads to enlightenment versus a striving that's full of wanting and craving. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and that's an interesting thing, of course, in that little series there, when he sees the ox, of course, the want is very great and the striving is very great. Yeah. And I find that uh, in my own path, uh, particularly in the early years, there there is a great amount of the energy that is devoted to 
that striving, so to speak, you know, that trying to do it right, that trying to um, understand, that trying to... Um, you're grasping still at very much the forms, even, even with the teachings, you know, we're striving to understand the teachings. But what happens when we overly strive, we can very easily get very dissipated and get um, confused, you know, because we haven't or um, uh, upset because we haven't achieved certain results. I mean, there was some in the notes I didn't mention is that even though some people have practiced many, many years and may not have got very far along, not that it's so linear, it is actually, um, you know, sometimes you're back in the thickets and sometimes, you know, you're the sage on the hill. But as you mature in practice and you start to see everything is dhamma, you know, everything is revealing. Sitting here, I've never sat in this room with all of you, you know. I've sat in this room many, many times, but every time, every place is unique in that moment. I blink and it's changed. So it takes a lot to, to open up the awareness and the, 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 the senses. And, you know, as I said, one sense will lead you one sense, you waken through one sense of sound or seeing, it will open up all the others. That's the gate, you know, but, and, and uh, the, the wisdom comes through. But until that, you know, you're really right, just right there all the time, what is very important is to understand the parami and where the parami of um, not only... It's how they're placed... It's, you start with the parami of giving and gener generosity. So you're giving yourself to the Dharma. This is what you're talking about, the striving. But then it has to be moderated by the, the, the parami of, of the, um, the precepts. You know, they help to moderate it. They help to um, alleviate the grasping. And then, but then comes patience. You know, it, it can all these things you, you to and fro for a long time. But patience leads to the right energy, and the right energy or right effort is what that last one is all about. That I shared the fourth one. It's not the last in the series, of course. It's only the fourth, but I only went to there because it's a stage that you're talking about right now. How to how much? If the rope is too tight. That, that that ox is much bigger than me, that mind is much, it's going to either break the rope or it's going to bolt and I'll be dragged along with it. If it's too loose, then it's also, go, also going to want to go and raid the, the grass on the other side of the road or something. You know, a mind is like that. If the mind is too tight, then something will give. If it's too loose, then very quickly, you know, let's... What are we going to do today? <laughs> we get bored. And then you go into, once you've got that right effort, then you've got the capacity to have the right meditation, like the right stability of mind to sit and, and have balance, have stillness, have present-mindedness, whether your eyes are open. And that meditation should be able to be everywhere at all times. When that happens, then, of course, the right effort will, will, will find its own because you'll be accepting of wherever you are. When you're craving something, it's just another form of craving, what you're talking about. When you're craving something, you're driven by it. In the belief, it will give you something in return. It will give you some peace. It will fix your problems. It will, you know, help you overcome your addictions. You, ha you have a belief, if I do this, all of this will happen. But actually, all of that just still grasping and craving. Mm. And so the thing is to open the capacity, open the senses, be more gentle on yourself, be more, you know, caring and 
and giving. Mm. Often it's just giving of ourselves more and more. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Jai. Now we're going to get the real Dharma talk. <laughs> Succinct in two lines. <laughs> uh, when you talked of the simile of the bull, I first uh, thought you were referring to the, the mind that has to be trained. Then I thought you were referring to the bull, the truth, the Dhamma. Then I realized that seeing the mind trained and the Dhamma, seeing the truth is only same. That's right. Like uh, what is observed and observed, there's no difference. That's right. There's no separation. No, that's right. So train the mind yeah. and the truth, it's the same. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But it's, uh, you know, getting the training of the mind in the truth, it reveals the truth. So the training of the bull, which comes actually in the next, the next one, is all about the training. I was going to give it, but then thought it might be a bit long. Getting it first, you know, getting here and getting to practice and disciplining yourself and meditating every day, then this becomes, there are many aspects to the training, you know. Um, as anyone here who's done many retreats and studied the Dharma a long time. But the training is, you know, the training is a little bit like listening to the Dharma. We're hearing it where we know what to do how to actually do it. To really every day have that discipline that every day I meditate, every day I read a little Dharma, every day I observe and I will become more awake to my life. Then this is not just the pointing, not just the finger pointing to the moon or the, you know, the finger pointing to truth, the Dharma pointing to truth. All the Buddhist teachings are just showing us how. We actually have to do it. It's all about action. It is actually all about action. How to act. How to speak. It's not going to be so refined. My actions, if you see me in the garden, it's not so refined. You know, <laughs> I get in there and I, I do my job. You know, I don't always know where my my tail is and where my head is. You know. <laughs> You learn, but you learn skillful means. And, and what Dr. Jai is talking about, once you come to the truth, of course they're all connected. But the, the whip in this, of course, you know, the whip is what it is that dis, you know, disciplines us. <clears throat> Thank you. Is there anyone else who has... A, an inquiry. Very good. Look, good to see lots of new faces here, people who have not been, and um, thank you for coming. And um, I wish you all a very good week, and I think it's going to be a beautiful afternoon, so now you've had your fill of dumb, you can go and <laughs> see truth elsewhere in the world. Thank you very much.